That's what she said is fueled by Gatorade. Whatever path you take to greatness, Gatorade is there to fuel it. Greatness starts with G. ESPN Podcasts is proud to introduce Black History Always, a new podcast hosted by Clinton Yates in partnership with The Undefeated that takes a deep dive into the stories of now and tomorrow from a Black aperture that will empower and inspire. Rate, review, and follow Black History Always. Welcome to That's What She Said with Sarah Spain, a podcast about, well, whatever the hell I want. Actors and musicians, athletes, comedians, neuroscientists, wine experts. If I find somebody interesting, I'm bringing them to you. We'll talk about how they became who they are, how they found success, battled failures, and how they ended up here talking to me. Hi, my name's Tom Vanderbilt, and I have a dilemma, which is that I am not sleeping lately. I was awake at 4 a.m. this morning, and that's been about uh, normal for the week. So that's my dilemma. (laughs) Ugh, and that's brutal. going to bed at like that's going to bed at like midnight. I'm not saying I go to bed at nine yeah. and wake up at four. Okay, well we'll start with the obvious easy fixes. Do you have any lights in your bedroom that could be covered or turned off? Are you looking at screens, TV, phone, whatever, right before bed? Are you having caffeine too close to bedtime? Are you eating foods that maybe mess with your digestion? Start by getting rid of those potential distractions or issues. And then you may have already attempted these sort of tried and true methods, but just in case try meditating right before bed. Lots of times uh, it's hard to fall asleep because we can't quiet the mind. We're planning for the next day or stressing about something. So quick 10 minute meditation, sort of clearing things out can really help. I also like the occasional five milligrams of melatonin if I kind of feel too awake at bedtime and like it's going to take a while. Hopefully those help. Um, And if not, maybe you've got a topic for your next book, right? You could just dive into the research on sleep. That's what she said. So regular listeners will remember a few weeks ago when I had on yoga superstar Jessamine Stanley, and we talked about the trepidation that she felt going into a hot yoga class for the first time in her 20s, but she decided to sort of fight through the fear of embarrassment or pain or feeling outside her comfort zone, and it totally changed the trajectory of her life and career just by being willing to try, to start something new, be okay with not being great or having experience. And it's something that so many of us stop doing as we get older. We're so used to being proficient that we lose our desire to experiment and learn and put ourselves out there. It's bad for us mentally and physically we, to you know, be stuck in a rut and stop evolving and growing and learning new skill sets. Um, and bad for us to, to not be okay with trying and failing uh, after a certain point in our lives. And After that conversation, got a suggestion to talk to our next guest, and he knows about this better than most. He's an author who decided to dive into the world of new beginnings. Tom Vanderbilt, a best-selling author of a couple books, Traffic, you may also like, um, and he's written for some publications, including the New York Times Magazine, the Wall Street Journal Magazine, Popular Science, uh, and others. He's a contributing editor of Wired UK, Outside and Art Forum, and a winner of the Warhol Foundation Art Writers Grant. Uh, among other honors. And his latest book that he's here to talk about today is called Beginners, The Joy and Transformative Power of Lifelong Learning. So we talk about why he decided to write about trying new things and how uh, learning stuff like singing, surfing, juggling, and other new hobbies and skills taught him the importance of actually being an old dog that learns new tricks. So uh, hopefully listening to this will inspire us all to get out there and try new things, including me. Uh, Just today I was given the choice between kayaking or stand-up paddle boarding at a friend's upcoming wedding weekend festivities and I decided to get out of my comfort zone. I'm going to try paddle boarding. I have no clue how I'll do uh, but that's the fun of trying something new, right? I uh, hope you enjoy the interview. Hope it inspires you to get out there and try something new too. That's what she said. So I want to get into beginners and the reason actually why it was recommended that I speak to you because of a previous guest in our conversation about beginning new things when you're older and and learning how to not need to be proficient at everything in order to try it. But I want to go back to the beginning of you, you know, where did you grow up and and was it always sort of a, a, was it a straight through line to becoming a writer? Yeah, I'm actually, uh, I was born in Chicago, actually grew up on the south side, south suburbs, let's say, um, back in the 1970s to date myself. So, uh, you know, just to put kind of a sports angle on it. I was a White Sox fan uh, during some very dark years. In fact, I was I was a Chicago sports fan during a lot of dark years for 
pretty much every team. Yeah. Uh, th- <laughs> things got good when I moved away, basically. You know, suddenly the Bulls were doing then. well. Uh, yeah, it was so. all it was you, you're doing. <laughs> um, and yeah, I'm just, you know, I, I do think there is, it doesn't always have to be this way, but for me, there was a pretty much straight line from, you know, being obsessed with, with going to the library, begging my parents to take me to the library, checking out the maximum number of books, then writing things in school, then writing at the college newspaper, which was up in Madison at the University of Wisconsin. Uh, that was almost like an apprenticeship program for me um, in the old school. And then I you know, started writing the minute I got to New York, which is where I moved because that's where writers have to go. That, that was in my, <laughs> in my brain at the time. So yeah, there's kind of a pretty straight line. So you you moved to New York, and what was the idea then? Was it I want to write books? Was it I want to write for magazines, newspapers? What did you, was it fiction, nonfiction? What did you want to cover? Yeah, I mean pretty much all of the above. But I think a lot of people, you know, move to a place like New York and think, oh, you know, I'm going to write for the New Yorker magazine or the New York Times. Um, and you know, there, number one, there are very few jobs at those places. <laughs> uh, number two, they're never advertised. You don't open the the want ads back in the day and see, you know, staff writer wanted, New Yorker magazine, must like to write long <laughs> pieces and interview fascinating people. Th- those jobs just don't exist. Instead, you would open the Sunday newspaper and see jobs like, um, traditionally, there were a lot of financial newspapers that were hiring. And I d- indeed did work at a financial newspaper for a little while called The Bond Buyer, which um, studies the world of uh, municipal finance. It sounds like Which my is, worst nightmare. It's, I, I mean, it's, it's, it's not my jam. <laughs> it's important stuff, but you found yourself, you know, talking about things like, let's say, sewer financing. And there were literally phrases like the solid waste community, because there is a community of people dealing with the problem of solid waste. So it was very dry, very boring. Um, the other job you used to see advertised a lot always had the um, tagline, must be comfortable with adult material. So these were, you know, basically, you know, skin, skin mags. Um, so these were the jobs that were sort of that, that you could find. Uh, uh, so I did work in Wall Street for a while, and then I kind of branched out on my own and just, um, you know, it was a hard road for a while, but, you know, sort of stuck with it. And here I am today. Your first full-length book was called Survival City Adventures Among the Ruins of Atomic America. What drives you to become interested in that topic and to decide you want to dive deeply enough for a full-length book about it? Uh, yeah, it was a weird thing. I was I was out with a friend um, in the, the Utah desert. He had this he had this sort of arts residency, which sounds strange, but and it was in a town called I'm picturing Breaking Bad. I'm sure it wasn't nearly like that, but that's I think uh, art residency is a cover for uh, you know Yeah, you know, it, it looked like that, let's say. But um, you know, and it, it was in this town called Wendover, which is half in Nevada and half in Utah. It's right on the border. So you can gamble on the Nevada side mm-hmm. and the Utah side is, you know, you can't. So, um, so w- anyway, he was staying in this former, like, you know, a Quonset hut, which was part of this Wendover air base, which is actually where they, they used to park the Enola Gay, the plane that uh, brought the atomic bomb and dropped the atomic bomb. Um, so uh, on that trip, we just started discovering a lot of things like that that were out, like these weird, I don't know, you know missile silos, defense installations, all just sort of like rotting in the desert and, and looking strange. And I, I just it occurred to me that, you know, a lot of other battles are very famous. You know, like people go to World War II battle sites. Um, you go to any town in America, there's some old like statue for a Civil War hero, something like that. But the Cold War, you know, we built all this interesting and, and weird stuff and no one really knows about it today. Um, right. So I went to places like uh, NORAD, which is called Cheyenne Mountain. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that, but if you saw the movie War Games with Matthew Broderick, um, <laughs> like, they go to, to NORAD. So anyway, that was that was the sort of thing. I just felt like I, I think it speaks to one thing that's interested interesting to me. Um, not not so much the last the latest book, I guess, but things that are sort of right out there in front of you, but you just don't look at it or don't think about it. Um, and that that would apply to my. Uh, traffic book as well, which was which looked at driving, um, something you know all of us do pretty much every day, and have questions and opinions about, but don't often have time to really think about it. Well, and in talking about that book, you said that you found there was tons of research about driving and traffic and the etiquette of of sharing the road, but there weren't any serious books about it, and you decided that you should be the one to write that. Yeah, I mean, when I first brought the idea up, you know, the the response I got was, I can't believe no one's done that already, which is, you know, sort of uh, 
the, the magic right. for, for a writer. <laughs> of course, then I wanted to, to rush and get it done before someone actually did do it before me. But, um, and yeah, I mean, this is the kind of thing where I had, I had some uh, events that happened on the road, tried to find answers to it. And I thought, well, maybe someone's looked into it a little bit. And I would find these, you know, 90 page papers on like turn behavior at a four way signalized intersection, which, you know, makes for some heavy reading, but also, you know, kind of fascinating reading because, you know, people, you put people in behind the wheel of a car and put them in a large group and they can't really interact the way they normally interact um, with, with eye contact and, and talking, you know, strange things happen. So um, I, I found it to be a, that even though it was very nerdy, uh, that stuff is very interesting. And, and that's kind of an, one of these jobs that, you know, every town has a traffic engineer, but people don't know much about what they actually do despite the fact that, you know, anyone with a driver's license considers themselves to be a traffic expert. That's right. kind of, you know, that's the old cliche. Um, so you find these things that, that um, like you said, are sort of in front of our faces, but haven't been explored. How often have you had in the past an idea for a book or, or thought about, oh, this would be good. You start working on it and you say, eh, it's not going to be the thing I want to spend the next few years on. Yeah, so many times. I mean, I, I, there should almost be a word for that. Um, but, you know, false start. I mean, something more exotic right. than that. But, um, yeah, I definitely had sometimes even going to, like, full, long um, proposals. And then uh, other times it's just, like, a, a sentence elevator pitch that doesn't survive the afternoon. You know, it's like it's a great idea at breakfast. And then by the time you go to bed, you're like, ah, what was I thinking? Right. Um, so What's one or two that you've gotten, a, a, you know, a bit into before you turned around? Um, oh boy, I'm trying to think here. Um, it's been a little while, but, um, I mean, I, just all sorts of weird stuff. I, I had this, you know, in fact, I, I'm trying, I'm trying a little bit of a blank at the moment. I don't want you to give um, away any that might, you know, come back around, uh, and, and be a grand <laughs> idea that you revisit. So it has to be something that you realized was a spectacularly bad idea once you uh, started on it. I mean, you know, I, I there's things I, I, like I'll see a random advertisement in some weird magazine that I read about like, oh, hey, I live in um, rural Scotland and I'm selling this bookstore I've had for 30 years. And I think like, wouldn't it be cool to like go buy that bookstore, yes. move to Scotland, yes, run it, run that bookstore and then Do write it. about it. Yeah. And then I start to think, well, like my daughter's in school, like, is she going to go to Scotland? Uh, you know, do I want to work at a bookstore? Like I, you know, do I like people that much that, you know, so th these ideas That's a good fall point. Apart, but that is where it would fall apart for me too. People. Yeah. yeah just well, retail. Yeah. Book I mean, part like, would be good. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned your daughter and she was, uh, the impetus, I think for this latest book beginners, which, so I had, uh, this, yogi on who is sort of a mogul now in the yoga world jessamine stanley and she's known in part for kind of breaking down the barriers of expectation for what you look like if you are someone who teaches and does yoga she's a heavy set black woman i should say fat because that's the word she uses for herself she's a fat queer black woman who found herself surprised to learn that other people were surprised that she did yoga. She thought this is a thing that everybody should do, but she started it in grad school. And in the podcast, she talked to me about the idea that she needed to, in the moment of taking this hot, hot yoga class and walking in there, decide, did I just pay $30 to talk shit to myself for an hour about how much I suck? Or am I just going to let myself try? And if I let myself try and I suck and I fail, what's the worst that can happen? And how we don't do that later in life. And she and I got to talking about how we're all so comfortable being proficient that failure no longer feels like an option. And then we just stop trying new things. And that's when somebody from my Twitter suggested your book and then uh, your rep reached out. So perhaps they have a Google alert on the name of the book. Very good mm -hmm. on them. And here we are. And I'm fascinated to talk to you about this concept because after that interview with Jessamine, it really started me thinking there's a, there's a Nike ad that's out right now that has a bunch of kids trying sports and being bad at them. And we so rarely glorify that. Instead, we show the people who are the very best who have earned the sponsorships and are beating everybody. And this Nike ad sort of subverts all of our expectations about what it is to try something new and to embrace um, the, the beginner stages. Um, and, and your daughter essentially having to learn all the things we learn in life is what is what inspired this for you? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and she, she like most 
kids, you know, at age four, let's say, was still very much a beginner, like a beginner in life. You know, they're like everything is new to her. And, you know, it's it's a wonderful time of just exploration and discovery. And so we were playing a game of checkers in, in a library and she saw this chessboard. She said, well, that looks kind of really cool, like those little like knight figures and, you know, all this stuff. And can we play that? And I was like, um, yeah, I don't actually know how. Uh, so that was a very awkward moment for me. Um, wondered like what you know why did I never learn this this game I mean it's and it's actually a a little bit of an intimidating game it had I mean the rules are not that hard but they are a little bit you know to remember and then there's this it just has this thing attached to it chess you know that which kind of came out in in the wonderful you know Queen's Gambit yeah um, of just being like sheer intellectual firepower and and you know so why you know, the idea of, of trying to jump into something like chess as particularly at my age would be kind of intimidating, but but for her, I was like, oh yeah, yeah, more power to you. Let's let's do this, because I had seen or, or read something you know here and there about like chess makes you smarter, basically to to short shorthand. Um, so I was like, well, I don't know if that's true, but if she wants to try it, let's try it. So I was I was trying to teach myself really quickly, and I just wasn't succeeding that well. And I felt well, I don't want to like do this you know half ass. So let's uh, I'll, I'll hire a coach, and I know that's such a <laughs> such a like uh, you know twenty first century helicopter parent yeah. thing to do, but you know I thought it would be cool, and I, I thought you know then I thought well why don't I jump in these lessons also? So we became you know the, these two two beginners with very different life experience and and you know cognitive you know uh, stuff going on upstairs, and I, I thought that'd be sort of interesting, and then and and it turned out it was, and but I, I was so you know kind of uh, charged by the whole experience that I thought. Well, well, here's here's the irony. I, you know, I'm, I'm telling her like you should just go out and try things, kind of like you know that Nike commercial you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Uh, try swimming, try piano, try this, try that. If if you're not great, that's fine. We'll move on to the next thing. If you like it, you know, stick with it. No pressure. Uh, you know, you should do this. And then I was like, well, I'm telling her to do this. Why aren't I telling myself that? I was not doing anything of what I was actually counseling her to do. So I felt you know very hypocritical. Well, the then, visual you provide of that is stark because I don't have kids, but I had never thought about the number of parents who basically drop a kid off at ballet or gymnastics or whatever, and then sit there for an hour diddling on their phone while somebody else is learning this new skill and trying this new thing. And the parent is just kind of killing that hour. Maybe they do some work. Maybe they have a conference call. Maybe they run an errand. But that kind of visual of of the two different stages of life, one is this growth period and one is stagnant, was a really fascinating idea of, of what kind of spurred you into thinking, why do I keep dropping her off to learn all these things while I'm never doing that? Yeah. And, and I just saw that time after time. And, I, and of course, I was usually the person like sitting there just on my phone while she's swimming, um, while she's doing this. And, and these were things that I had not mastered. So, so in some cases, I didn't even know how to do at all. And I, I found and you know, I just found it was strange that not that many people made this conceptual leap. I, I have talked to people, you know, very interesting people, a, a woman actually in the Chicago area who was taking her kid to karate classes. And this was a thing. It was only for kids. But then the instructor one day had this idea to start like a mom's karate during the day. So it took a, a little bit of courage for her to get up even to do that. Uh, but then she, she found that she was loving karate. Then the instructor actually canceled that class and he kind of combined them all. So soon she was doing karate with her kid and they were even doing, they were even doing bouts like sparring um, and kind of some of the same dynamics. Like you'd think there'd be a size mismatch or whatever, but, but karate like chess is one of those areas where kids can do you know, as well as adults, they even, it, it, it finished with her um, actually going to like the national, some sort of national championships and actually winning something and her son being in the audience, which I thought was wow. a great, yeah, you know, a great reversal of the usual thing, which is, you know, parents <laughs> taking their kids all over. And not that there's anything wrong with obviously taking your kids to soccer and watching them win, but why does it have to be one so one-sided? Why do we just give ourselves that permission to essentially give up? I mean, you can be a productive parent, still take care of your kid and have tough, have time for this stuff on the side for your own. But I, w- I would think that like the uh, yogi you were talking about, you know, a, a lot of people never get to that stage because they have these um, just sort of interior fears, interior voices um, telling them that they're, you know, they're not going to be good enough. That's too late. They're not the right sort of person that does that. They're not talented. Um, 
And those are the sorts of things I was trying to overturn. Yeah. In the book. So you, in the in the chess example, if if we can revisit that, you're you're taking lessons alongside your daughter. Who? How old was she at this point? Uh, she was four. And um, okay, so quite young. And you were kind of trying to pay attention to how her brain was receiving the information from the coach and then turning that into chess skill versus yours. And and that's one of the focuses of the book is this idea of. Um, a lack of fluidity or, or agility in the adult brain because we overthink everything because we've seen everything and we try to apply all the other things we've seen and learned in life. Whereas there is a sort of youthful not knowing that allows someone to look at the board and see it quite differently. Did you notice that with your daughter in the way that you both approach that learning? Absolutely. I mean, throughout chess and other experiences, you know, number one, she would just plunge in. She didn't, you know, have any sort of you know, fear. I, w- I was nervous on day one with the instructor, like, you know, after, because I, I, I learned a little bit to play. And then he said, let's play a game. And I, w- I was sort of terrified. I, you know, there, there's no reason he, I knew he was going to destroy me, but because he is, he was so experienced, but I still just felt this um, fear. And, you know, he described it that, you know, kids are sort of treating chess like the way they do language. They're not really worried about grammatical rules so much. They just, they just, learn and play by imitation and by trying things and by experimenting. Um, it's sort of like babbling. That's, that's why we babble when we're kids. We're testing out language. If kids, if babies sort of came into the world being all concerned about grammatical rules, they would, they would never learn to speak or they would learn to speak when they were like 16 because it would, right, uh, right. but adult, adults were obsessed with rules. And we, you know, we, uh, before we, we go into something, we want to know, like, you know, what's the timetable for progress? What should I expect? What should I, how should I get better? We have all these, you know, preconceptions. And this is something that, that for example, uh, my, one of my surf instructors told me, comparing the difference, you know, kids just come, they have fun, they fall down, they don't get hurt. Adults, you know, they're, they, especially, especially men for he, this, this person argued, come in, you know, I, like, I need to crush this thing. I need to crush it in two months or I'm going to look stupid that's a very counterproductive way to try to learn something. You're putting all this pressure on yourself. And then it's one reason I think kids just learn so well and so fluidly is they, for, for the large part, you don't have that sort of pressure. They may sometimes feel pressure from their parents, but which is not a great thing, but. Um, right. Well, and also there's a, there's a self-protection that comes with aging that is both useful in the sense that when you're a kid, you, you, you don't often get hurt, but you're also like not nearly as waylaid by a broken hand or arm as when you're adult and you're aware of just what a bitch it is when you have a broken arm for however long, right? Like you have a lot of life that you need to take care of. It's really annoying if you've gotten injured and you can't do those things. Whereas a kid, it's sort of like, this is the price you pay for playing on the monkey bars or doing whatever it is you do. But also, you know, in speaking to this Yale professor I had on Lori Santos. She talks about the heuristics that mm. we we learn over and over and we convince ourselves of things. And very often because of evolution, we actually expect the very worst out of situations and are protective against that. And so often we're wrong. We guess very wrong at what the outcome of things will be. And so as kids, you haven't yet learned to presume I'm going to try surfing, but I could drown or break my arm or get beat bit by a shark or whatever, or look embarrassed or my bathing suit could fall off in the middle. You just <laughs> yeah. go and try it. Right. And so in some ways we protect ourselves with the things we learn over life, but they can also be really um, daunting and they can, and they can halt our ability to try things. Did you find that depending on the kind of skill you were learning, it was more severe and more difficult to not have that agility and fluidity and to have those guesses at what could go wrong. And then other things, it, it got in the way less. Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I, I guess some things were a bit more physically oriented. Um, so there were, there were larger concerns about my health. And in fact, I did have some pretty nasty um, surfing incidents, which landed me in the doctor's office. Um, but the, in some ways, what was even worse was a skill like singing, which, you know, like surfing didn't feel that connected to my actual self or my, let's say my, you know, inner being that like, okay, if I'm not a great surfer, you know, so what, um, I'm older, you know, I'm, 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 maybe I'm not that coordinated, but, but singing, I felt like, you know, you have to, it was this kind of opening yourself emotionally and, and vocally and physically and all these things to a stranger, my, my instructor, um, I, I just felt the stakes were a lot higher there in being bad. Like somehow that I was really going to take that 
much worse. And this is something that that I think particularly plagues singing, which you know people we've I think we've just come, especially in, in the U.S., to think that. Uh, you know, singing is a, a God-given gift that these people are these amazing handful of singers that we sort of cherish and become global superstars. They're just born with that, like that, you know, that's it, full stop. Um, but, you know, it's sort of like, yeah, we don't tend to say that about a lot of other things, you know, like sports, for example, that so-and-so was just born to shoot free throws, like, I don't know, like this three-year-old out there shooting free throws, you know, no, like that person had to spend a lot of time, many thousands of hours, like doing this practice to get where they are. And, singing is really not anything different. You know, it's, it's a motor skill that you have to practice and, and develop and, and you can develop and actually get better at. Um, so I tried to, one thing I tried to do is, you know, sort of divorce my pride from a lot of these things and just don't worry about the goals. Don't worry about what it sounds like in the moment. Just just do the, do the exercises, do the drills. If progress comes, that's, that's great. Try to learn what you can along the way. And I think, I think we often get in the way of our own progress by, because what happens is you start to focus on the mistakes you're making. And then you try to come up with a way to, to correct those mistakes. But often the way we try to correct the mistake is by sort of subconsciously brings up the mistake and why we're making it. So, that, so then we're just sort of back to square one. Um, so I, I found a lot of, a lot of the learning process was just trying to almost function on autopilot. And just just do whatever the instructor was trying to tell you, and not overthink it. And again, I think that's where kids have a little bit of this this benefit because they don't, again, just have less of that self consciousness. They their uh, you know frontal cortex isn't fully <laughs> developed until age uh, twenty five or whatever. They have a lot of years they could do they could do stupid things and and not you know not feel as bad about it. Right. Well, there's also a real pride. And I, I've mentioned this before, and I mentioned this with, with Jessamine, like when I learned how to play the clarinet as a kid, I was so proud of being able to play even the simplest thing that I would play it over and over and over again. And as adult trying to learn the guitar, I wasn't proud of hot cross buns. I needed to play something much <laughs> better immediately. And I never allowed myself that that time to get better because it was too frustrating to me to not be as great as I was at the end of playing the clarinet after 10 years or however long it took me right to be great. So I think that stands out too in something like, like singing. There is a subjectivity to certain artistic endeavors that I think allows people to say, for instance, Whitney Houston is different from me and I will never be Whitney Houston. So I can be in the middle or I suck. Right. There's like a because I actually do think there's a God given sort of and I'm not religious, but that sort of idea of like maybe idiot savant is a better term or some sort of way that like there are like Mozart or people who sit down at a piano and somehow can remember all the things they just heard and play it right back. Like there's there's some of that at play with music and with certain people who can write and perform with almost no with almost no training. But then there's that middle group of people that are all great and they have to get better and learn and use the skills to get better. But then there are people who really suck. Like they really can't hear that they're nowhere near the note. Do you believe that those people even could be taught proficiency or are there certain things that it's just like, it's not going to happen for you? Yeah. I mean, this is a, this is a very real concern because I hear it a lot when I ask people like if, if they'd be interested in singing and they say, no, I'm tone deaf. And there's been research on this and, you know, they've actually looked into, you know, the number of people that are technically tone deaf, like as a medical condition, and it's actually really <laughs> right. small. I mean, it's maybe, you know, something like one out of 100 people or two out of 100 people. But, you know, based on what people tell you, it sounds like 50 out of 100 people are tone deaf. And as I mentioned in the book, it doesn't help, by the way, that, you know, some of the songs we are actually, we actually do sometimes sing in public, like Happy Birthday or maybe the Star Spangled Banner are incredibly yeah. difficult songs yeah. to sing. I mean, they're, um, they're, <laughs> so you have this condition where we barely sing, then every time we do it, everyone does it badly because we're doing this <laughs> challenging song that we haven't practiced. And, you know, it's just, it's a self, sort of a vicious cycle there. But um, yeah, and there are certainly, you know, but there are people, yeah, some people have a, have a leg up and whether that's a better ear for music, which itself could be trained, however, but, you know, or maybe their voice is just distinctive. I mean, then, then you kind of get into like quality versus quantity. But I think um, I'm, I'm a firm believer that that everyone can get better. I, I, cause I just, just quantitatively, I have on my, my um, iPhone, an app called, uh, I think it's called pitch perfect. Um, yeah. And it has you do, has you do scales. 
sync scales into the phone and it gives you a numerical score of zero to a hundred. And when I started that app, I was getting like 51 out of a hundred on my scales and through time and just repeating it, repeating it, repeating it. It's not like I, you know, had some major, you know, life change, or whatever. I just, it was just, again, that like doing tennis serves over and over again, I just sort of got better and I began to hear myself more clearly and it's interesting. Just, just work those muscles. And now I can, you know, I can get to like a hundred or 99 and it's not that I've become some amazing singer, but I just, and this is what I would like to get us back to though, you know, in this country and elsewhere, it's just kind of singing as less this rarefied art form and more just like a social thing that we do together because it's fun and it really has a right. ton of benefits. I mean, you could- well, you got a lot out of the choir that you joined. Like that was a huge part of it. Wasn't just that you enjoyed the act of singing, but what it meant in terms of changing your your schedule and, and the way you spent your time. Absolutely. And this is a weird thing, you know, where I think pe people don't know how much they can change or, or grow. I mean, if you had asked me before writing this book, are you interested in joining a choir? I would have run, I would have run out of the room. Um, this is, I had no desire. I thought choirs were sort of nerdy and like associated with, you know, just. This from a guy or, who wrote a book about traffic. I mean, come well, on. I, <laughs> you know, it's like, I find that um, offensive as a singer. <laughs> a different kind of nerdiness, but yeah, no. Um, but then, you know, so yeah, this, I signed up for this choir because I, I felt like I was taking these vocal lessons and I wanted to, you know, do something, see, see, see if they could, I could bring them into the real world. And I, I found that, you know, this choir was number one, just not only a, almost a therapeutic experience. Every Monday night I would go in, you know, a, a new week, that sort of heavy feeling you have. And I, I would leave just, just buzzing and just on a, on a, a literal high note, like every time. Um, and then there were all these unexpected social benefits as well, just sort of meeting people that became friends, which, you know, is something that can be a little bit harder when we, when we get older and, you know, we, we kind of already have our friends and we, we another, another way we often sort of give up, you know, we think, well, it's, it's too late to, you know, have a new best friend or something like that. But, um, but then just the, the, the experience of going through something with people, I think, I think is so powerful. Uh, whether it's a surf camp or a drawing class or, or a choir, you know, seeing a group of people come in very green and then, you know, work hard and go through this sometimes traumatic uh, experience. Yeah. And then do a performance at the end of the, end of the year. And, you know, you're on stage and wow, there's my daughter in the audience instead of me in the audience at her school recital, which also happened, but, um, you know, it, it, so it was great. Uh, and I just, it seemed to me like, you know, uh, some form of, of medicine or, or therapy, just singing in general. And I, I know there are, there is a lot of research talking about, you know, mm. it's just a, a it is therapeutic. Yeah. yeah. Singing, dancing, all of that. Um, I love what you said about making friends too, because there's countless research, especially on middle-aged men and the pandemic of loneliness, the idea that a lot of men become focused on their work and then they start a family and they lose friendships, whether that's because they move to the suburbs or, and that men don't really want to chat on the phone so much as they want to do activities together, but they're, it, it's tougher to do with their schedules and their families. And they sort of lose out on those really important connections and places to share feelings and experiences and just hang out. And there are so many people I know who are so stuck in their ruts of what they do all the time that could so benefit from adding something new that would introduce them to a whole new group of people and, and uh, just get them out of the, out of the habits or, and you know, the things that you did were all pretty fun. I mean, you were learning how to sing in a cool choir. You were learning how to surf in Costa Rica. You were quote unquote wild swimming, which you'll have to explain to everyone um, in Greece. I mean, these, these are not the kind of things that the average person might be able to begin at uh, on a regular budget and with the time that they're allotted, maybe the singing one. But um, how did you decide after that first chess with your daughter, which things you wanted to apply this, this project in this experiment too. Yeah. Well, I mean, fun is, is a great word because I, 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 you know, this was not for my, my job. I mean, it, it was because I was writing a book. Right. But, but apart from that, there weren't going to be skills I was going to take away from this necessarily that would help me in my day-to-day -day career, you know, and it would be useful for me to take, let's say a coding class, maybe a, I don't know, podcasting, graphic, graphic design. There are things that would be, you know, good, but I wanted this to be things that I actually wanted to learn at some point in my life or had been on some sort of list. And then I thought it would be fun because that it's hard 
when you've got a lot of other things going on in, in life to find the, the time and the desire to do something like practice. And if something's not fun, if it's not, if, if the practice itself isn't bringing you pleasure, you know, that's just, you're already setting yourself up for right. a certain disappointment. Not that it's always going to be easy or that's always going to be fun, but you know, it, it's, I wasn't looking for like a second job. I wasn't looking for, you know, something that was going to push me, you know, I, cause I've kind of done the endurance sports thing and I, I, I love sports, but I, that was beginning to feel a little bit like a second job to me, kind of this idea of always training, you know, having to hit these benchmarks. Like it felt like just some sort of peer review. And I was just, I was losing the joy from that kind of experience. So, um, I agree with so you. I, just, I wonder, is there a follow-up though on doing things that you don't necessarily want to do or that you're afraid of doing <laughs> or, that, or that don't feel like a natural, I'd love to try that? Because that's also, I imagine, a, a really important thing for a lot of people right now is this idea of the comfort zone, not just in terms of proficiency, but something I'm afraid of or not certain of, I'm just going to avoid it forever. <laughs> like the, I, yeah. I have to admit that I'm very biased in this because those people annoy the the hell out of me because I'm one of those people that like refuses to be gotten by something. Like, even if I'm afraid, I'm like, no, I'm going to do that so that it doesn't scare me anymore. And when people aren't like that, they're like, Oh, I just never would need, I'm, I'm good. I'm like, but, but then you just never get to do this thing that everyone says like snorkeling, snorkeling's great. Scuba diving's awesome. Just try it and see. And they're like, Oh, I don't need to try it. That bothers me. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great point. I mean, well, although some of these, you know, I mean, singing is fun, but I will say it is terrifying. I mean, I could. Okay, so you were scared I, of that one. Okay, that's. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I because, didn't want it to be all things that you were like, that would just be fun. <laughs> like, right. No, I mean, because I, I did think like one other thing I thought about doing um, just because I, I thought it might open, you know, interesting doors or push me in a new direction because I, I'm a little bit of a introvert. So I thought something like improv theater would be yeah. sort of a great way to, you know, get out of that comfort zone. But, you know, singing, you know, in a way sort of is a form of improv um, theater. It's certainly a performative aspect. So, you know, being up on a stage in front of people, even though I'm with a choir, but uh, it's still was still not easy for me. But uh, but it, it singing just felt a little more authentic to me versus improv theater. You know, it would be interesting, but it wasn't this lifelong uh, dream yeah. I'd had. But and there would certainly be some other things that I would be scared of in, in kind of a risk analysis way uh, or. or or that I thought wouldn't be necessarily responsible of me to undertake as uh, the parent of a young child, right. skydiving, mountain right. climbing. Well, and, and the would, book isn't yeah. about facing your fears so much as it's just beginning at things and, and trying new things, which is different than the concept of just doing something that scares you. So, um, yeah. and, and, <laughs> and, and one of the things you, you talk about in the book is, is, um, I guess it might compete a little with the the simplicity of, of the message, which was uh, you you reference you know Zen Buddhism and the idea of cultivating a beginner's mind, being able to be open and and express you know both humility and creati creativity at the same time while trying something because you're seeing it differently um, because you don't have anything to bring to the table in terms of experience. I think that would maybe be muddled a bit if you were also terrified all the time. Right, right. Um, but but what you say about you know, this being not just fun, but also, you know, some of it's sort of exotic. And part of that, you know, I was trying to make it interesting for readers. And, but the, but the point is, is that, you know, especially in this day and age, I think learning is really available to, you know, almost anyone. I, I met one woman I met who's in the book uh, was uh, Patricia. She's a French woman who she was, uh, you know, on a plane trip and read the in-flight magazine. And she saw this article about wild swimming or it's, you know, essentially open water swimming, not, not for competitive purposes though, but just, just to swim in the ocean and, and have a great experience and uh, kind of connect with nature and et cetera, et cetera. She didn't know how to swim and she was approaching 70 and like, there's a lot of doors that are closed to her. Right. Uh, but she, undaunted, she found a local pool. She lives in, in Switzerland, uh, but the pool, they didn't offer lessons for adults, only kids, because the, the thought was, well, you should have already learned how to swim you know, at your age. Uh, then she went online to YouTube where there's a lot of actually really good swimming instruction videos from uh, you know, various people. And, and so she sort of like, and then she had her sister uh, filming her. So she kind of hired her own like coach or, you know, and, and she just made it happen. Uh, even though there there would be many reasons for her to say no, and then a year later she's on this 
a wild swimming trip in the Bahamas, a week long. She was actually there for two weeks. Awesome. I was only there a week. She was staying a second week. And, um, you know, cut to me sort of like sitting in the boat, almost ready to throw up because I was basically <laughs> dehydrated. And she's out there just, you know, crushing it in the water. Uh, and so, you know, just another, you know, lesson that it's it's not too late, you know, for, for most people. I mean, there's there's always... And, and there's ways to get to, you know, she had to save up for that trip. It was, you know, but, but she did the, the groundwork very close to home and used these resources that were available. And so all these things, chess, singing, drawing, there's all this can be studied at home for free online. You could, you could pay for it too, but a lot of it is just free. Yeah. Which there I think is, is so a great much thing. information available now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it, and sometimes it feels like we just don't have enough time to learn all the things and read all the things. So you have to, you have to pick some of them. We'll get right back to the interview. But first, what's your favorite word? I'm kind of a big bike nerd, so I really love the word. Uh, well, it was it was taken up by a brand, but the word Peloton from, um, you know, from bike racing, uh, but n- not necessarily the brand. The brand is fine, but I kind of liked it before that. So anyway, something like that. Okay, we'll give it, it to you. It has a nice flow. It's French. Yeah, yeah, I'm with you. Pelet- Peloton. Peloton. Okay. Uh, first spotted in 1706, meaning a small body of soldiers or a platoon from the French peloton, which means small ball. Apparently, that mass of, of, of soldiers together looked like a ball. Uh, then by 1884, the French were kind of using it to talk about what we know of, of it now, this cluster of bicyclists in a road race riding closely together to reduce their wind resistance and conserve energy. And we also think of the brand Peloton and whether our workouts on the bike count if we don't Instagram about them, right? Speaking of great words, you gonna learn today. In keeping with the theme of the day, the word of the week is greenhorn from the mid 15th century, literally meaning horn of an animal recently killed or young horned animal, basically an animal who's so young, the, the horns haven't fully matured from green, new, fresh, recent and horns. So applied to uh, new soldiers beginning around 1650 and then extended to any inexperienced person by the 1680s. Felt like a word for this week and one I never knew the roots of. Uh, So in a sentence, she showed up at Wrigley Field after the trade deadline and realized a bunch of green horns with names she didn't recognize now made up the bulk of her favorite baseball team. Now let's get back to the interview. One of the things you emphasize is enjoying the process and not the product. And that is both a great piece of advice and also increasingly difficult in an era where so much of what we do must be shown as proof and documented for uh, digestion from friends and strangers even, right? So much of what we post online to prove that we've been somewhere, done something is a photo or a video of great success. And we kind of cut out all the stuff that looks ugly or messy. And your point is not to have it be about at the end of this, I won an award for my singing and now I'm a professional surfer, but rather just here's all the things I learned along the way. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And, and even though, you know, I did, I did make improvements in those. I mean, in some ways you almost can't help, but make improvement and this should be, you know, it just, it just happens if, if you're, if you're taking a, you know, a certain amount of time to do the thing and actually paying attention to what someone's telling you and, and you're just, you know, sort of half conscious, you'll, you'll get better. And, and it's a nice virtuous cycle because the, 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 when you get better, it sort of, you know, feels better then you, you want to yeah. do it more and, you know, but, you know, kind of going back to the choir and these these people I met that became friends, there were just all these other benefits to doing these things that were unlocked simply by plunging in. And, uh, yeah, I mean, like, like you say, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not a pro surfer, I'm not a pro singer, but I think it's just changed the notion to me of, of who I am. And there's, there's a great... Uh, line by this uh, psychologist at, at Harvard University named Daniel Gilbert, who's who's quite has a quite couple of quite famous books. But um, he, he calls it the appear or on the pod. There you go. Um, so he, he calls it the end of history illusion, and he, he did this experiment. You know, where the the, the the finding is is that people often think right at this moment they are the person they are going to be. Like their identity has has they've arrived at this the end of history. Like okay, I'm I'm done here's what I'm interested in. Here's who I am. Here's where my friends are. Uh, but then, you know, he did these studies where he asked people to look back 10 years and they were actually different in all sorts of ways. Yeah. So why wouldn't they think 10 years from now 
you could be this different person. And that's where I felt like taking all these things suddenly, you know, I kind of consider myself a singer, like, or, mm-hmm. or, or yeah. I'm singing or, you know, I'm sort of a surfer, you know, like, you, you, so my, my little sort of life resume as, as Jesse Itzler calls it, you know, has expanded and that, and it's not just for like bragging rights or anything. It's just, I, I think it's opened the world to me and, and opened, you know, sources of information and, and, and just made me more, uh, empathetic uh because this is something about learning and going back to your comment about men often having trouble meeting new friends later in life i think another issue is that a lot of these classes i was in were really dominated by by women and i Mm -hmm. feel like i feel like men find it a bit more hard in general to position themselves as vulnerable yeah almost at any age but certainly in middle age and to i mean learning requires humility to, to be open to learn something says, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, and that's the same sort of humility you almost need to make new friends. Like you need to open yourself up. You can't just, and yeah, like I have people that I ride bikes with who are guys and we, you don't necessarily talk about our deepest fears or whatever, which is kind of hanging out. But I, I also want that other stuff too, but that's a little bit, you know, it, it's as hard, it can be as hard as singing, just opening yourself up. When you started the book and came up with the concept and started to begin things, I'm sure you had a lot of ideas about what you might learn and have to say about it. How do you avoid just looking for confirmation bias of those ideas as you're going through the process of, of the beginning and learning? Yeah, that's interesting. I, I haven't been asked that. Um, I mean, I think one thing is that, you know, I had these preconceived notions of, of going into these activities ahead of time, what what they would be like and what it would be like, how I would learn them. And it was all what, how we, how I actually learned them and what they actually were was, was different. So I, I kind of thought right from, right from the get go, I was sort of knocked off my pedestal a little bit there and like, Oh, this is, you know, learning to sing is, you know, learning to sing, for example, I thought, well, okay, my, I'm going to go to my instructor's, you know, rooms, she's going to be at the piano or just going to start like, singing songs like i'm like right. you know bill bill murray the lounge singer or whatever and it's yeah, yeah. fabulous but but no it was like it felt like some kind of like 1960s like deep psychological um <laughs> breaking down of my personality i mean num- number one just to kind of just to produce like, sounds and and tones in this in this very basic regimented way and and breathing exercises and relaxation exercises your tongue's uh, getting in the way my tongue, my tongue was like a major uh, impediment. Uh, it still is sometimes, but, um, <laughs> and, and yeah, like it was just this, it was a real, uh, you know, kind of full body experience in a way that I wasn't, uh, you know, quite prepared for and, and has linked up in retrospect with all these other things like, like that, uh, book, uh, breath by James Nestor, you know, the, the, the idea of breathing, like, I, yeah, I, I didn't like a lot of people, I didn't really think much about breathing at all. Again, it's just something you do. Right. But singing you know when you're when your breath is the 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 motor that's powering your instrument you you need to think about it a little bit and how you know so that just put me sort of in touch with my own body creates a certain kind of mindfulness you know to use these you learned you have a diaphragm (laughs) diaphragm uh carotid muscle all these other things i can't even remember but um and i also learned that i had a a a vocal paresis which is a paralysis of one of my vocal folds which was you know talk about learning things about yourself uh in middle age but right uh, something that uh from the get-go was going to make singing a harder thing for me because it's like well one of my vocal folds vocal cords is out of whack uh so you know, but luckily that's one of these things that's, that's trainable and, and fixable. So um, anyway, it, it was, it was a minor, minor impediment, but. Uh. Yeah. No, I just always find it interesting when the, when authors come up with a concept and then they start the work, how much it deviates from their original idea of, of the work that they were going to do versus how much they have to consciously and intentionally not seek out things that are just going to reaffirm what they expected, because especially in in something like this, where the whole point of it is to understand what it is to not know and to be okay with not knowing or not being proficient, uh, to come into a book like this and saying, I already think I know all the things I'm going to learn about learning. Yeah. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Well, and and I would say, you know, one thing is that, you know, it's, it's not always a success story. It's and there were things that I liked more than others. And, and you know, in, in, 
let's just say in, in juggling, I sort of picked up juggling as one of these things because in part, because there's a lot of interesting research about it, but I never got to five balls, which still like to this day irks me. And it's not too late though. There was no, no end game. But, you could no, still, it, you could begin right now and trying to I get could. to five balls. And it kind of gets that, it gets that motivation question. Like, do, how much do I want that? Like, and maybe I didn't want it enough. Maybe my, <laughs> my heart wasn't, my heart wasn't pure enough. My juggling heart was not pure enough. Um, but yeah, so it's just, you know, but, but that's okay. Like I, I still was able to do four balls and three balls. And, and here's, here's the thing about skill learning. That's kind of cool is, you know, not a lot of people do any of these things. Like if you take the full population, so if you learn to juggle and you go to like a, a party or I was just at this event and I saw some balls on the ground and I know I sound like an insufferable dork, but I said, oh, this kind of look like juggling. I, this kind of look like juggling balls. And the person's like, oh, does, I wish I knew how to juggle. Does anyone here know how to juggle? And I said, well, uh, actually, <laughs> no one else knew. Like, and it's just, it only takes, you know, a week to sort of pick it up. And there you have this fun party trick. So, um, yeah. <laughs> I, it's funny. I, you just actually reminded me, and this is making me feel terrible, that last year on my birthday, it was August, so mid-pandemic, and we were so limited in the things that we could do that I decided, partly because I saw many of the people in the world around me learning new things as a result of having tons of free time that they hadn't anticipated, right? Learning how to make sourdough or you know, doing, learning a language online or something. And I never got a break. Uh, that's not a complaint. I'm very glad to be employed, but I never had the free time everybody else found themselves with. I just worked more than usual, uh, which is perhaps <laughs> something I need to address. But um, I said to myself on that birthday, I said, okay, every month for the next year, I'm going to learn something new. And I only made it the first month. I tried to learn how to do the whistle with your hands under your tongue thing. Oh, um, yeah. And I spent probably a grand total of 15 minutes across several days and never, you know, five minutes at a time getting annoyed and then stopping. And then that was it. Cause I learned how to saber a champagne bottle on my oh, birthday. Wow. Okay. And it okay. made me think I learned a new skill. Like if I'm ever at an event and there happens to be a proper sword, I can saber the champagne bottle and impress everyone. Now I want to keep learning cool skills. And I just never did it. I got caught up in all the other things in life. And um, you've just reminded me uh, that juggling is another fun one, or if you could play the piano and you happen upon a room with one, how delightful it is when someone in your group can sit down and play the piano for everybody. Like those are enviable skills. And it's another reason why the the goal and the kind of message of this book is is not just the experience, but it can be the result. It can be that then you have this thing to offer and add that you hadn't had in your life resume before, which is which is also really a cool thing, um, even if you're not the best at it, even if you're just okay. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you you went from a, a non-champagne saberer to a yes, champagne yes. saberer. How, how did the, so the, the whistling didn't happen, though? I'm, I'm curious. It uh, didn't, and I didn't give it enough time. And I also, I didn't hire a coach or really uh, employ <laughs> any any reasonable uh, experts. I just went online, and they made it look so easy. And, and that was also the problem. They were like, just do this, and here you go. And I was like, I'm doing that. It's not working. <laughs> and then I got annoyed. Um because I'm a good candidate for people who expect to be great at things as soon as they try them. It's a problem. And, and now I have to ask, are there whistling coaches? I, I mean, I'm I bet sure. there are. There's got to be. Okay. There's coaches for everything. <laughs> We're closing up here, but I, I wanted to, I wanted to ask, and, and specifically I just referenced that because I love words on this podcast. Um, you said you set out to be a dilettante which we always think of as sort of an insult because uh, we expect the goal to be greatness, but it actually comes from the Italian word, word to delight, which means that it's something that we are okay just delighting in doing instead of having to master, which blew my mind. I've never even thought about that before. So is, is the end message to people more about the process of saying that we're willing to be humble and vulnerable enough to learn or more about the idea of not always making everything about ambition and mastery. Is it the beginning or is it the end? I, mean, I think it's to, to weasel out of that. I think it's, you know, sort of, sort of both in a way, yeah. but you know, it's just, I, I and, and I want to say that like, I, I think there's nothing wrong with, with mastery and I, I aspire to mastery in, in some things in life. But I think, you know, e even when you talk to people that are, amazing at what they do. And usually it's one thing, sometimes it's more than that, but it seems like they always have 
some little thing on the side that is something they've found that they are taking delight in. And they, they're not as good at that thing as they are their, their main sort of gig, but it doesn't mean it's not bringing them an immense amount of pleasure and meaning to their life. I mean, there's uh Oh, uh, who was I just reading about the actor who was taking up ceramics? Is that Seth Jonah Rogen? Hill? Seth Rogen. Seth yes, Rogen. Yes. Um, yeah. Yeah. And like, you know, and maybe, maybe he's, he's getting good at it, but that maybe necessarily wasn't the intention. Sometimes that happens almost accidentally. If you, you find you love it so much, you, you get really good at it, but you sort of scratch anyone like that. And they've got something that, and they sort of want you to know that about them. I think if you, you know, after a while, or they want their friends to know, like, cause you know, they're quite content that you know, everyone already knows them for the, being able to sing, do, do this, but, but you know, Hey, I've got this other side and, and maybe they're tired of being typecast or, or right. pictured as one. Well, especially if it's quirky, right? I mean, especially if it's like you said, you can do a thing that most, the average of the population can't, can't do and has never tried. Yeah. I think, and I think sometimes we want to just surprise other people, maybe even surprise ourselves because we just get, you know, life is, is too short to be just, you know, sort of in that same, to, you know, why not? And there's just this empowering sense, like, you know, when you learn to do that, that savor that champagne bottle, it, you know, learning to whistle, I would love to do that whistle, by the way. And I think you'd instantly be, you know, hireable as a, uh, as a gym, <laughs> as a gym teacher, because like, or yes. you know, coach, because you have right. to do that whistle. Um, that would just, it, it just feels re- uh, like a sense of renewal to me, you know, you, you're not just this, older, you know, person moving through life, trudging through your comfort zone, you, you've closed off the exits, you're kind of like stuck mm-hmm. in your holding pattern. I just, I mean, I just saw a funny, uh, you know, one of these little sort of buzz phrases online that, you know, nothing, nothing, something like nothing grows in a, in your, in a comfort zone or something, which I yeah. felt like is, you know, is true. That's, that's where the growth comes. Uh, speaking of words, another word I like, uh, which kind of means novice is neophyte. Mm-hmm. And that actually means newly planted, huh. and that's sort of the way I felt about all these these things I was starting. That they were like little gardens, and I was I was sort of tending them. And they were, you know, some are some are moving along better than others. Some I forgot to visit for a while. And the weeds had grown up, uh, but but you know, it, it brought me delight to kind of revisit these things and see how much I had you know come along since the last time, and just to see all that growth. I love that. And I I think you're so right, too, that as you get older, it certainly makes you feel younger to learn new things and to discover things about yourself instead of feeling set in your ways. And um, I, on this podcast, love to talk about neuroplasticity and the idea that we can actually change our brains and who we are and how we react to things by being intentional and aware of the choices that we make each time we're presented with a way to react or, uh, or an approach to take or a view of something that happens to us and then how we react to that thing. And I would imagine that becoming somebody who's always up for something new feels very different than being somebody who is intimidated or pushes away the the unfamiliar. Like that that would uh, that would benefit you in times of crisis, in times of um, tragedy. And at, at any moment, the idea that you already taught yourself that you can pivot and be agile would be helpful in so many ways beyond just learning skills. Yeah, I mean, that's a great point. I just saw there was an article in, in a psychological journal talking about during the pandemic that, you know, they sort of mentioned coping strategies were, were these these skills and hobbies. I mean, just, just uh, you know, they seem so trivial in normal times, but then when a lot of the world is closed off to you or, or things have changed for the worse, um, you know, it's to provide some some island of, of stability and, and meaning and, and some way to, some way for you to keep growing as, as the the world's kind of on pause. Um, and, and, you know, yeah. And what you say about neuroplasticity, this is, you know, there's a lot of cliches about, you know, learning keeps you feeling young and all that, but it, it re- there really is demonstrable proof that, you know, older people learning things, particularly together in a group has, has uh, quantified benefits to be shown on, on these sort of cognitive exercises right. that, that were given. So you're, you're, you're brain is staying nimble. And I was talking to a, a psychologist out in uh, UCLA. One thing that often happens uh, in a negative sense for older people is that if you don't have that thing you're just talking about, that openness to experience, that it gets easy to become fearful as you get older. And, and you, every new obstacle that comes along, you sort of want to run away from it. 
Uh, like you get a new phone. You don't want to get the new phone because there's like too many weird features on it. You don't want to get on the internet because I don't, you know, I'm scared of that. That's just this, this vicious cycle that happens that it just, your brain starts shutting down. You're, you're closing off this newness to experience that you're not working the muscle enough. And it's, it's this, I mean, she was arguing that this is, you know, sort of implicated in, in dementia in some cases. And, right. And well, I know, I, I know, folks, uh, my mom is one of them who likes to use her mouse left-handed and do a variety of things left-handed because of the studies about it, you know, preventing Alzheimer's and other forms of dementia. If you're triggering parts of your brain that haven't been used before, it keeps that away. So there certainly is some science behind the idea of of beginning again and, and learning new things. Uh, before I let you go, you do have to do the one thing that everybody does and nobody expects. I didn't expect a kind of Spanish Inquisition. Nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. It's the Spanish Inquisition speed round. Number one, your current <laughs> career is canceled. What do you do for work instead? Private investigator. Mm. Number two, what's the most scared you've ever been? Uh, maybe singing in public. <laughs> <laughs> uh, number three, you could be the best in the world at one thing for one day. What is it? Uh, playing on a world cup team as, as a striker and scoring a goal. Oh, nice. <laughs> uh, number four, what current celebrity from music, politics, TV, or sports would you most like to be your best friend? Um, Oh, darn. Uh, geez. <laughs> this is, this is Spanish inquisition. Um, <laughs> who was I thinking about recently? Oh God. Um, I'm, t I'm totally drawing a blank here. Um, can I pass on one? I'll give you a pass. We might come back around. Number five, okay, what's your okay. most meaningless pet peeve? Well, I, I have a lot of sound hangups, like this sounds that other people find pleasing, like this mm. whole M ASMR thing, yeah. like the sound of people whispering or the sound of, of keys, keyboards clacking. Those drive me up the wall. So <laughs> I, I have so many nice vocal pet peeves. Yeah. <laughs> um. Number six, what's the most embarrassed you've ever been? Can we go back to singing again? <laughs> <laughs> I like it. I like that it was that traumatic for you. Um, number seven, what's the thing about yourself you'd most like to improve? Maybe to be, I talked about empathy and, uh, before, but to be, to be, maybe to be more empathic, more, more of a sensitive uh, sort of listener and understanding other people's motivations better and, and 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 being less judgmental let's say that's kind of a long-winded uh, yeah answer, that's a good but. one um any musician or band alive or dead can play your next party who is it <laughs> mm. well let's say frank sinatra i mean oh, okay just, old blue eyes all right yeah uh number nine what would you consider your biggest failure not becoming a professional singer no i'm not, I'm not going to bring everything back <laughs> to singing um biggest failure um this quiz. Um, <laughs> I really thought I was going to go to uh, like graduate school and become an academic. And then I didn't get into the place I wanted to go. So I guess that's kind of like the biggest failure on paper, but it actually worked right. out really that's well. The, that's that. what pretty much everyone says. They don't consider anything failures because they yeah. would then have to retrace everything that happened as a result. But in the moment, yeah. it felt like a failure. So I'll, I'll allow it. That's yeah, a good yeah, one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, number 10, what three individual words would you most hope that people would use to describe you? Kind, um, funny and, um, uh, loyal. Those are good ones. We've got time. What current celebrity in music, TV, politics, or sports would you most like to be best oh, friends with? Well, I, let's say, uh, who just popped into your head? Well, there was there was and you're a four year old. Stop overthinking it. No, it's related to my <laughs> related to my um, book in a way, just because because I, I think he's like just interesting um, guy. I mentioned the book uh, Ethan Hawke because he was yeah. taking learning how to sing uh, from the same instructor that I did, and I actually you know, tried to get in touch with him, and that didn't work out. But but I just think he's he's doing really interesting uh, yeah, work, for sure. and I, I think we'd have a lot of interest that would dovetail. So. Ethan, That's if, if you're one. listening, uh, you know, <laughs> hit, hit me up. <laughs> uh, and then final bonus question. Who should I have on this podcast that I would find interesting? It could be anyone from any industry. Um, 
have you had David Epstein on your on your show? He you wrote a book called Range. Um, yeah, which, and a lot of people have recommended him. Yeah, I bring it up because it actually came out right as I was uh, right as my book was going to the the publisher, the printer, actually. But but there was a it, it's a, his is all about like you know you know we're, we're, we're kind of a, we're obsessed with mastery, but his is we're obsessed with specialization, and there's a very similar message there. But you know his is maybe a little bit more oriented around people's careers. Yeah, but it's just not uh, getting locked into one thing you don't have to start something when you're 12 and be a be a prodigy um right you know you, you can change a lot in life and and find success um so that, that a very interesting, interesting book and i and it yeah. kind of dovetailed with some of what i was thinking about and i have his book the sports gene but i haven't had a chance to read it yet either so um that would be a good one uh thanks so much for coming on tom i really appreciate it, it was really interesting thank you sarah it was great that's what she said oh yeah one more thing so this is a place for me to rant rave tell you what to read, listen to, watch. Sometimes I complain, sometimes I share a great story, whatever's on my mind. And what's on my mind today is my past weekend that was full of amazing live music for the first time in forever. I didn't go to Lollapalooza, but I went to two of the after shows, Mount Joy and Band of Horses. And if you're not familiar, go check them out. I, I, it had been such a long time. I actually went to Mount Joy drive-in show last summer during all the COVID stuff. And this was uh, my first two concerts, big concerts since then. So it's been a long time and just brought me so much happiness. Band of Horses have been around for a while. Um, you probably already know them, but if not, check them out. And then Mount Joy is pretty new, gotten super into them. And you may remember hearing the lead singer, Matt Quinn, on this very podcast a couple months ago. Check that out if you didn't listen. Check out Mount Joy's music. Uh, it'll make you happy. You can always tweet me at Sarah Spain if you've got guest suggestions, questions, or more. And you should always go to the iTunes or podcast app. Subscribe to That's What She Said with Sarah Spain. Rate it five stars, please, and give it a review. Thanks, as always, for lasting about an hour with me. That's what she said. That's what she said.